0: When my uh, daughter Bethany uh, heard what passage I was preaching on, uh, she sent me a link to a uh, satirical Christian website, Babylon B. Uh, if you want a good laugh, it's a great website to find out. You just got to remember that it's, uh, it's satire, and its uh, tagline is uh, fake news you can trust. And uh, it was satirizing the phenomenon of publishing houses producing study Bibles for specific targeted audience. This is men and uh, women, couples, uh, outdoor types. And as I was thinking of this, maybe there's there's room in the market for a left-handed Bible, study Bible. You don't know but the article was supposedly reporting the the launch of a new study Bible by a well-known publishing house, a new study Bible for women, with well over 30,000 well-researched notes that would help women understand what they read and live out God's will for their lives. If they simply followed the little numbers after any verse printed in pink, of course, And the punchline, and why this was relevant to us today, was that all the notes said the same thing. Go and ask your husband to explain. (laughs) Which references verse 35 in today's reading. Now it is satire. But it does challenge us about how the passage that we had read to us today is to be understood and applied. And our Winter Sermon series this year is called Her Story, Her Voice, Women in the Bible. And my contribution to this series is called Women in Leadership in the New Testament, The Silent Witnesses and The Silencing Passages. What we're doing is we're looking at the issue of women and leadership in the church by going back to the New Testament and seeing the evidence, like the names of women in Romans 16 and elsewhere, of the involvement and acceptance of women in leadership by Paul. And then systematically and seriously looking at the Pauline passages in Scripture like 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 11 and the one that we had read to us today that seem to be anti-women in leadership. And I know it's hard going. Uh, I know that it's difficult. And I know that we need to acknowledge that there's a split theologically over this issue. There are complementarianists, who believe that men and women are created equally in the image of God, saved by Christ, filled with the Spirit, and given gifts, but have different roles, and women's roles in church leadership are limited. And that has been the traditional view. And there are egalitarians who have gone back and looked at scripture, who believe men and women were created in the image of God, saved by Christ, filled with the Spirit and given gifts, and are free to exercise those gifts in any situation and position God calls them to. And we need to acknowledge that both sides want to be faithful to scripture. So with that in mind let's look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 14 with particular focus on verse 34 and 35 which call for women to be silent in church. Now Paul is writing to the church at Corinth one that when you read through the letter you realize has a particular and an interesting and complex set of issues and challenges and this passage is the conclusion of a section that starts in chapter 11 Uh, concerning public worship. And it starts with Paul affirming that both men and women can pray and prophesy in public worship. This was part of the tradition Paul passed down to the church in Corinth. That's in chapter 11, verse 1 to 15. The issue was keeping the socially understood appearances and relationships for men and women, husbands and wives. And, you know, we looked at that last time. He then goes on to talk about the issue of poor and rich, free and slave and communion, telling the people at Corinthians to, Cor- Corinth to make sure that they met when they met, that, that, that the slaves were waited for and catered for. And then the last three chapters, verse 12, 13 and 14, are about spiritual gifts. And we had a look at them leading into Pentecost this year. Now when it says that all gifts are given by God for the whole body to be used for the common good. And the way in which they are to be used is in love. You know that wonderful uh, passage, 1 Corinthians 13, about love. And finally, in the present chapter, that they were to be used in an orderly way, which reflects the nature of God as the God of peace. And the focus was on prophecy, proclaiming God's word, that was, uh, Paul said, was the most useful gift, as it was good for instruction, correction, and revelation but they weren't also to stop people from using other gifts like speaking in tongues and it finishes with Paul talking about the fact that his teaching was accepted by all the churches and that sets the context now let's have a look at the content of verse 34 and 35 it says that women should be silent in church that they're not allowed to speak And then it goes on to expand on this by saying, if they want to inquire about something, uh, affirming once again the theological education of women, let them ask their husbands when they get home. Now, in Greco-Roman society and Jewish society, women married early, and it was the norm for women to be married. And there are reasons for women's silence given. The first is that they must be in submission according to the law, The second is that it is shameful for women to speak in public. Okay, how are we to understand that passage? Well, first, some have seen this passage as a ruling for then and all time that women should not speak in official capacity in public worship. However, there are some difficulties with that view. There are some difficulties that are internal to the passage uh, those, two, those two verses. Because, you see, Paul normally refers to the Old Testament when he uses the word law. The uh, Good News translation is wrong when it puts in the word Jewish law. It doesn't say that. It just says the law. Okay? And it's just following what Paul would normally talk about uh, when, when he talks about the law. But, you see, uh, we know of no such law in the Old Testament, you know? Coupled with the idea of being shameful, it may be talking about the conventions of the time where women speaking in public was not the norm. You just need to think maybe of some Middle Eastern cultures today. Usually a woman would speak in their own home or if it was in public, usually they would speak through their husbands. But you know, how are we to understand that with the norms of our own culture and time? And it's also difficult to have that interpretation within the context of the passage, the wider passage. Because you see, Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians 11 saying that women can speak, that they can pray and prophesy. It's tied in with the tradition that Paul had passed on to the church. Also, it goes contra to the teaching Paul has just given on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that they are for the whole body. He even said, I wish all of you would prophesy that you'd all proclaim God's word. Now, almost as an afterthought, we have this ban on women speaking. And it also does not make sense in the wider context of scriptures, where we have women speak and proclaim and be involved in leadership. We have the women at the resurrection told to go and tell. We have the woman at the well who goes and tells the people of Samaria and begins a church in Samaria by the way um, uh, she is named uh, Fotini in the eastern orthodox tradition and the eastern orthodox church which sprang up from the church in Syria and around there actually acknowledge her as an apostle we have Deborah and Miriam and Huldah who you'll hear about uh, next week when Chris uh, Garland speaks are women prophets in the Old Testament and have significant roles to play in the story of God. Then we have the list in Romans 16, where Paul, uh, of, of these women that Paul talks about working for the gospel and calls co-workers. And important for Corinth is that Paul actually met Aquila and Priscilla at Corinth. It tells us that that happened in Acts chapter 18. And Acts chapter 18 is the only time that Aquila is mentioned first. They're mentioned five times in Scripture, and only once is Aquila mentioned first. And that's when when it comes to Corinth. That's because Paul meets them here. It's the first time he meets them. And the reason he forms a relationship with them is because Aquila is a tent maker. But elsewhere, Priscilla is mentioned first, which is that she is seen as the more significant of these co-workers with Paul. So, you know, it doesn't. that interpretation does not fit in with the flow of Scripture. Well, some have seen these verses as a gloss or an interpolation, and that might be quite challenging to us. They come from the realm of textual uh, criticism, uh, and th- that means that they, they are seen as a later addition to the text. Now, that is rare in Scripture, but this could be one of those possibilities. We don't have, of course, any copies or any manuscripts of this book that do not contain these verses. However, in some texts, some uh, uh, versions, they are not where they are put in the Bible, but they are found after verse 40, which means that there's some question about them. And of course, removing them from the chapter does not impact the flow of Paul's argument. In fact, it improves it. In the New Revised Standard Version, uh, they're put in brackets, which is a way that that particular version of the Bible acknowledges that there is some issue to do with them in in terms of uh, uh, understanding where they should be. And in the NIV, there's a footnote which acknowledges that in some texts they appear after verse 40. And on a technical level, uh, analysis of the wording and structure has led some to question whether Paul actually wrote it. But as Gordon Fee, a well-known New Testament lecturer who actually supports this view, says until that is proven, we actually need to take them seriously. The other view of these verses is that Paul is dealing with a specific issue at Corinth. Remember, all the epistles in the New Testament are occasional to a specific time and place, dealing with specific issues, and if we lose sight of that, we, we lose sight of how to be able to interpret and understand these passages. Uh, that it has to do with a specific issue at Corinth. It's not a blanket ban. The focus of Paul's argument in the whole of this last cha- this chapter fourteen is order in worship. The worship at Corinth seems to have been quite chaotic. People all speaking at the same time. Uh, people uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying over each other and, and almost using the gift of the Holy Spirit to sort of say, "See, I'm more spiritual than you are." And so Paul has to write this. And if you read through the chapter, the women are not the only ones told to be silent and in submission in this passage. Tongue speakers are told to be silent unless there's an interpreter in verse 28. People are encouraged to keep themselves under control, one person to speak at a time. Likewise, prophets are told to be silent if another is speaking. They are told a prophet's spirit is subject to the control of the prophet. So whatever the disruptive thing that was happening amongst the women Paul gives the same imperatives as he'd given everybody else to bring order to public worship. Keep quiet. Be under control. And be in submission. Not to men or to husbands, but to yourself. To have self-control, which is spoken of in the law. And there's an appropriate way of going about things. Like, for example, if you want to know something, ask your husband at home. And he'll husband explain it to you. And there are also many theories of what this specific issue was. One thought it was because women married early and did not have much formal education. And they were excited with the new freedom that they had in the church and wanted to learn. so would ask their husbands questions while others were speaking. Which was a no-no in Greek public speaking etiquette. You didn't do that in Greek society. Added to that, they could have been seated separately, men and women, like in synagogue worship. So they would have shouted out to their husbands across the room, Hey, Berticus, what does that mean? You know? I went to a Samoan church one time, a very traditional Samoan church, and I was amazed to see women and children seated on one side of the church and men on the other. And what may be more relevant was that women. Uh, there was a woman who sat in the middle of the kids who all sat at the front and she had a stick. And she could reach any of the kids with the stick. You know, and if a kid started sort of uh, whispering to another kid or fidgeting too much, she'd tap them with the stick. She wouldn't hit them with the stick. You know, she'd just tap them with the stick and she'd go, come here and sit with me. Because they were disrupting the social understanding of the orderliness Of worship. Where did I get to? There we go. Uh, The women may also have been disengaged from worship, and uh, and simply uh, talked and chatted to one another. Remember, it was a new thing for them to be included as equals in worship. On a practical level, people often wonder uh, where the women in the feeding of the 5,000 are when it's recorded in the Gospels. Do you notice that? It says 5,000 men. Well, a a New Testament lecturer that we had at Bible College went to the Middle East, uh, to Pakistan, and he 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 had an insight into what could have been that, was because the men would sit in orderly rows to listen. But he also noted that the women sat uh, separately and that the women was just this abuzz with noise and activity because it was the women and the children together. You know, maybe Paul's saying that's not the way it should be in the church. Another view is that this is talking about the congregation carefully weighing the prophecies that are given. Women could prophesy... But could not be involved in the more authoritative process of discerning and teaching. Wouldn't be right for a woman to be involved in this process because it may mean that she would publicly question the validity of a message given by her husband. One commentator says she could get, maybe she could get quite sharp about it. <laughs> Again, the issue at Corinth was a lack of structure and this sort of chaos. So imposing such a structure in the public um, worship. Uh, is arguing from silence. Uh, It also puts discernment on a level above the gift of prophecy, which goes contra to Paul's teaching that they are all to be used together. One scholar suggests that because the chapter focuses on prophecy, there would have been women who were new to the Christian faith who would have thought that Christian prophets were like pagan oracles where the oracle would only speak in response to questions asked by those present. Maybe we get an understanding of that today, you know, when people consult horoscopes. Don't do that, by the way. (laughs) Right. Um, But uh, for Christians, for Christian prophets, uh, sorry, and also often the, the, the questions that were asked of oracles were on personal matters to do with life and decisions that need to be made. And Paul is telling the women not to do this as Christian prophets speak at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. As one commentator puts it, no human needs to prime the pump. The personal things they asked about were better discussed with their husbands at home. Well, in the end, the biblical data is too limited to give a definitive answer. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase, tries to encapsulate this understanding of dealing with a local issue of disruptive behavior when he translates this passage, wives must not disrupt worship. Talking when they should be listening. Asking questions that could be more appropriate be asked of their husbands at home. God's book of the law guides our manners and customs here. Wives have no license to use the time of worship for unwarranted speaking. So it's dealing with that disruptive behavior could have equally been talking to men. All these ideas that we've talked about have merit and they also have difficulties. And it's hard to be dogmatic on either side of the argument, of the, either side of the theological split, simply from this passage. Okay, well, how do we wrap this all up and bring it to bear today for us? Well, the first thing is, I love the possible, positive em- emphasis about theological education for women and by implication because men had to answer their questions of men as well education that goes beyond go and ask your husband you know that wouldn't work in our house wouldn't work you know why because Chris and I both have formal theological education Chris preached in church a couple of uh, weeks ago and you understand that We both have university education. Um, You know, when we when we want to find out things, I will ask Chris often about things and she will ask me. We both have wisdom and understanding to offer to each other. In our reformed tradition, we want people to know uh, the scriptures and understand them and imply them. It's why we focus so much on the exposition of scripture. Opening it up and explaining it. It's why we set people aside. Ministers are not set aside to be the boss. We are set aside to be servants of the word of God and the sacraments. So that we can teach. And uh, so we want people to be able to encounter the living word of God, Christ, in the written word, the scriptures, through the spoken word, preaching and prophecy. Remember, prophecy is declaring the timeless word of God in a timely manner. It's why in our missional plan also we encourage connect groups because they're a great place for men and women to learn together. And we are blessed also in today's society with good resources online and in print more than ever before. Mind you, we need to be careful because we are also challenged with a whole plethora of different interpretations and theological understandings as well. And in our information age, we need wisdom navigate them. That's one of the reasons we need to have a good theological understanding and an understanding of the Bible. The reality is that all the heresies and controversies that there ever have been are alive and well and living on the internet, including the whole spectrum of understandings on the issues of women and men and women in leadership. And it's hard to go online and and have to sift through this. The second thing is that we do need order in worship. Doing things in an orderly manner, in a way which focuses on love for one another and allows also people to use their gifts. That's why I really like seeing people come forward, and men and women, and use their, their gifts in service, uh, around our services, and also in our services. It's great. Affirming the spirit of 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. Of allowing men and women to pray and speak and encouraging them not to be disruptive. You know, and if there is that disruptive element, then, like with the passage we read today, we need to have church discipline. Note it's for both men and women. Maybe the pendulum, of course, in this thing has swung too far uh, to the ordered. We're too ordered. In fact, one commentator thought he thought that Paul might come to church and think we'd ordered ourselves to sleep. You know? And we do need to have open times for people to use the more spontaneous gifts. And lastly, while I believe the fight for equality is important and significant, I can't help but feel the Christian understanding of ministry is mutuality. Working together, serving together, using the gifts that we've been given being the people, men and women that God has created and recreated us to be. You know, I'm excited when I see teams working together, men and women, intergenerational, multicultural, like our Alpha team, for the furthering of the gospel. In the end, the flow of Scripture is not about who can and cannot speak, but about being co-workers in Christ the glory of god amen amen let's pray loving god we thank you for your word we uh, realize sometimes we have to wrestle with it to dig down and to understand and sometimes we just have to simply say that we we don't understand the mind of paul but we do want to be led by your holy spirit we do want to be your people Help us to be men and women together who love one another, care for each other, who use our gifts for the common good and the glory of God. We thank you when we see people working together as co-workers for Christ and uh, for the furthering of the gospel. And we just pray that as we do that, as we find that unity of purpose and mission, that uh, you would provide the fruit of growth and uh, new life, Uh, lives that reflect uh, Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Amen.